When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I'm in uh, sunny Milton Keynes. It's not sunny. It's quite blustery. Uh, we're here for the English Open, which... Uh, is ongoing, of course, this week. And uh, so this episode will be quite quick. I'm just going to power through some emails we've had in. Um, there's no particular order to these. I'm just going to pick them out one by one and do my best to answer them. Uh, so we start with uh, Liam Sandbrook, who asks a question that I've been asked many times, actually, over the years, and it's this. He says, I have a question for the podcast. I was wondering, whatever happened to Tony Mio? He was one of my favourite players from the Golden Era. I've tried to find out what happened to him after he retired from the game in 1997. All I can see when Googling him is that he retired to run a jewellery shop in Hatton Garden. Well, Liam, I think I believe he's still uh, running that, or certainly is uh, selling jewellery. He is a player who was very well known in the 1980s. He was, of course, world doubles partner of Steve Davis, and uh, just a very recognisable face in that, in that boom time in the UK. And he's one of the few that did disappear. A lot of those guys, of course, inevitably stopped playing, but they were still involved in the sport, either as broadcasters or indeed as players who carried on playing. People like Tony Knowles, who are still, even now, trying to get back on the tour. But Tony Mio downed uh, Q's, as you say, when he retired in the 90s. And yeah, he went into uh, that trade. I know he keeps in touch still with Jimmy White. He was at uh, Jimmy's uh, 50th birthday party. I'm sure they've seen each other many times since. And uh, he just completely you know, put the cue down and uh, decided to, to pick up another career, which uh, I, I respect, actually. I respect anyone who can do that. You know, I, I respect the guys that carry on as well. But players who can say, that's that's it, that's me, I've uh, had my career, I'm going to do something else, you know, good luck to them. And uh, hopefully he's doing well. It, 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 Mio's an interesting case, actually, because um, he'd had a few near misses down the years uh, in various tournaments. Won the British Open in 1989, and there was a general feeling, you know, oh, at long last he's won a tournament. But actually, he was only 29. <laughs> he wasn't actually in any way a veteran at that point. You know, he's the sort of player now, in, in the current game, that we regard as young. Um, Alan McManus actually when he won the Masters uh, in 1994 I think he was I think he was 23 the headline on the front of snooker scene was at long last McManus <laughs> he was 23 but of course he'd been in a few finals got close semi-finals and whatever up to that point hadn't quite done it so uh, yeah Tony Mio as far as we know is still uh, selling the watches selling the jewellery and uh, we hope we hope that he's doing uh, that he's doing well 
Let's move on to uh, Chris Boggan, who talks about last week's podcast, The Sign of Four. Now, this was me and Phil Yates discussing uh, the big fours over the years. He said, your comment about lower-ranked players getting multiple centuries and still losing led me to thinking more about the intersection between standard of play and consistency of winning. I think the general standard lower down the rankings is indeed higher than it's ever been, but maybe in a weird vicious circle it's precisely for that reason that consistency in winning is lower. It's so hard for players to build on success, which also has mental repercussions. It would be great to see a sub-25-year-old player truly break through, but I think consistency is the key rather than standard. Not consistent standard, but consistent winning. Very good point, Chris. Of course, there is a player who falls into that category who's done just that, and that's Yan Bing Tao. Yan Bing Tao, he is actually a heavy scorer, but he's got the other game as well. Of course, he's Masters champion. He's won a ranking event. He's in the top 16. Um, and clearly a handful, beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in the Northern Ireland Open in Belfast recently. So I think he falls into the category of player you're describing. And it's, But it's a good point, I think. It's not just actually about, you know, as you say, making the big breaks. It's actually finding ways to win the bad frames. That's that's often the, 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 the key, the scrappy frames, when things get dragged out. Um, it's finding that side of the game. People like Mark Selby, Mark Williams, John Higgins, absolute masters over the years, are sort of trudging through early rounds, you know, not great standard matches, but then, of course, when they're there at the end of the of the week, they, you know, they up their standard. So yeah, I think I think it's true, and I think what we've seen, we've seen a few players sort of emerging who have had good little runs in qualifiers, but then when they get to the venues, that consistency that you talk about is not evident. And the only way under the prize money ranking system you're going to move up the list is to go deep in tournaments. Just get into a few last 32s and, and that sort of thing. You're not going to make massive progress because obviously the money lower down in the tournaments is not that high. The only way you're going to rise up the rankings is actually to, to be in semi-finals, finals, win tournaments. You know, it's, it, it's, it's that difficult. You know, Luca Brussel, I commentated on him on Monday night against Mark Allen. And you had to do a double take looking at the ranking list. Luca, 46 in the world. You know, ridiculous really. He's been in the top 16. In fact, he was three years ago. Um, but he's found himself in this plight. And as I said on the commentary, the only way, you know, it's great win over Allen, yes, but the only way he's going to haul himself up the rankings is to have a good run in a tournament. And who's to say, as we record this, it won't be this week. Now, Justin Barnes, who's a, a fine writer in his own right, a nice to hear from you, Justin. Uh, he's talking about uh, the, the Neil Folds idea, this doubles idea refuses to die, even though we've, we've been trying to kill it off for a, for a good year. And he said, uh, as Neil and Phil Yates both summarily scotched the idea of a new doubles, Scotch doubles tournament in the latest podcast, I was reminded of a YouTube video I stumbled upon of Karen Wilson and Mark Allen making an alternate shot 147 together in an exhibition. And Justin has uh, sent me a link to that. Check it out because uh, this is quite something, actually. He says, uh, fair enough, though, as Neil and Phil said, in tournament player match tables, the difficulty of players finding their rhythm might lead to some dire matches over best of nine or, God forbid, the best of 19 to 25 that the old Hofmeister World Doubles Finals were played over. But what about a shootout-style long weekend tournaments with Scotch doubles matches played over one frame or maybe best of three, and the players mic'd up so you could hear them discussing their shot choices? It might be fun for the TV viewing public to see how different partnerships negotiate break-building together, discussing escapes from snookers, etc., and how they react when one of them absolutely butchers a vital easy part or safety shot. Well, I'd enjoy watching anyway. The short format would place the emphasis on drama and the odd mistake littered frame, which goes down to the wire, wouldn't put the same downer on the tournament as the garbage best of nine conventional doubles matches that Neil remembers playing back in the day. I love the traditional formats, but as Barry Hearn once said, snooker is Coronation Street with balls. And I think different formats like this, the shootout and the recently revived British Open, which I really enjoyed, 
add a, add a little extra spice to the great big cooking pot that is the World Snooker Tour, giving lesser-known players a platform to show their character skills and gain TV experience. And with extraordinary general standard players on tour nowadays, I suspect there will be plenty of quality snooker played along the way. I think that's right. I think, if Justin, if you're going to have a tournament like that, then the, what you outline there is the right way to go. A short event over a weekend, short matches. I like the idea of hearing players sort of discussing tactics. I do feel, though, there is a kind of balance to be struck between the sort of seriousness of sport and fun, in inverted commas, because one person's idea of fun is another person's idea of torture. I mean, we know that because not everyone likes to shoot at. Some people actively dis- despise it, actually, <laughs> which to me is going a bit far, but some people do. Um, and I think sport, it is entertainment, but it's also people tend to tune in if they think it's serious. That's why the you know the, the big snooker tournaments get the biggest viewing figures. That's why, obviously, in sports like golf and tennis, you know, their majors get the big viewing figures. I think people overwhelmingly feel in sport that it has to matter and so if it's sort of too fun and it kind of looks like it doesn't matter would people tune in it's hard to say I mean obviously we are a branch of show business people will remember the old game show Big Break you know that wasn't serious but uh, but there were certain stakes because people were playing for holidays and whatever so I, I wouldn't completely uh, discard the, the scotch doubles but I think probably it would only work in the way that, that you've outlined there Jay Brannan writes, In a recent edition, one listener posed the question about the best World Championship finals in successive years. My choice would be 2002 and 2003. In 2002, we had a final between Peter Ebden and Stephen Hendry that resulted in the third and most recent Crucible final decider. This match also featured a then-Crucible record of eight centuries, bettered only by the 11 in 2019. The 2003 final, contested by Mark Williams and Ken Doherty, finished at 18-16 to the Welshman, after resisting an almighty fight back by the 1997 champion at one stage, Doherty trailed 10-2. I was also really pleased to hear last week yourself and Phil Yates wax lyrical about John Parrott's display in the opening session of the 1991 final. Just a few months ago, I watched this session for the very first time and marvelled at the brilliance of JP. The only session in a World Championship final I'd rank above it for individual excellence would be Judd Trump's performance in the second session of the 2019 final. Yeah, I mean, as we pointed out, John Barrett, he won that uh, 7-0 uh, in 73 minutes. Incredible. It was, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue with with your assessment there. I think it, it, it absolutely stands up uh, to anything that we've seen other than maybe uh, that uh, extraordinary performance by Trump in, as you say, that second session. In terms of the, yeah, I, I, I actually, it was one of those 2002-03, I remembered that after... Um, I recorded the podcast. I kind of thought, oh yeah, that was a that was a great uh, sort of double header. David Grace actually contacted me to to point out eighty five and eighty six. I mean, eighty five. I think people will remember, but eighty six. Joe Johnson beating Steve Davis and uh, Ted Lowe said something like, "This is the most remarkable world final I've ever seen," which seemed a strange thing to say in a way because you know the year before it had gone down literally to the last black. But uh, yeah, in terms of back to back finals, o two and o three, definitely I would say contenders. Now, there's been a lot of talk this week at the English Open about table allocation. Karen Wilson wasn't happy on Monday that his first match was not on the main table. Ding Jun Wee was on and he had his say. And uh, I admire him actually for having his say. I don't have a problem with players speaking out. But the problem is, I've sort of said this before, players overwhelmingly see it from their perspective. The point is, on Monday, and it's nothing against Karen, but Ding Jun Wee was on. Now, we've not seen Ding for a long time. Uh, in China, of course, the tournaments at the moment have stopped. 
World Snooker Tour, I think quite rightly, wanted to keep the interest going. And at the moment, that's only through television. Ding playing in the morning in the UK means that he's, it's prime time on Chinese television. So I think the argument overwhelmingly was to put Ding on. And I will also say this, I don't think it should be just the highest ranked player goes on. It should be what, what match contributes best to that session. For example, on Monday night, initially, it had been planned that Neil Robertson would play Andy Hicks on television. And Eurosport said, look, Mark Allen's won the last event. He's playing Luca Purcell, which is a great game anyway. But the fact he's won the last event, people want to see how he gets on in this one. That looks a better match. The match was switched. It was put to Neil Robertson afterwards. Oh, you were the high-ranked player. You're on table two. He completely agreed with it. He said, yeah, that looked a better match. I've got no, absolutely no problem with it. I think the other thing to say as well is this arena, the four tables are in a row. It's not like table one is in some glamorous location and the others are all in the car park. Not a bit of it. Um, there's not actually that much difference. Other, of course, than you get the coverage. You get to, you get to be shown on television. Karen was on table one uh, on Tuesday and he did win, so he's, he's still in the tournament. Uh, he's fifth in the world. Listen, I can understand what he's saying, but you, I think listening to some of the sort of senior players yesterday, it was hard to argue with what people like Judd Trump and Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course, who both play all their matches on the main table, were saying, which is, you know, you've got to earn your place. And that's what they did. Judd was saying, you know, it took him a long time, but he got there. Obviously, Ronnie O'Sullivan, it didn't take him that long. Um, they're always going to be on, and they should be, because they sell the sport. Now, there are people who watch every day, and they might say, well, we want to see different faces, but not everyone watches every day. If you know the snooker's on, and you know Ronnie O'Sullivan's playing, but you tune in and he's been put on table two because they, they're trying to put someone different on, you know, you might turn off again. Um, so it, 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 it's an issue, but in this era of streaming, of course, every table actually is available through various places, Eurosport app, Discovery Plus, lots of other places around the world, Matchroom Live and so on. So actually people can uh, follow these other matches. We did have an email actually from Malcolm Johnston. Uh, I think most people, from what I've seen, just generally kind of, I think people like Kyron, but I think they kind of thought, actually, what you're saying is probably not right. And what Malcolm says is this. He said, I had to laugh at Kyron Wilson's comments on not being able to buy a match on the TV table. It's quite simple, Kyron. Win a Worlds, UK or Masters, and you take over from one of the players that call the match table home. Except that's not quite right, is it? Because, for example, Yan Bing Tao won the Masters last season. He's not always on telly. Stuart Bingham has won the World and the Masters. He's certainly not always on telly. It's not quite as simple as that. The problem is you've got a, a sort of roll call of legends. You've got O'Sullivan, six times world champion, most popular player in the game, greatest ever player. You've got Trump, who is the current world number one and defending champion this week. You've got Selby, who's world champion and will be world number one at the end of the week. John Higgins, you know, another legend. Stephen Hendry, of course, coming back. He's on the TV on Tuesday. So, you know, it's difficult. Um, but it shouldn't be just, oh, everyone gets their chance. That's nonsense. You know, we're a professional sport. We're a commercial exercise. And it's all about the viewing figures, as Ronnie said. What Ronnie said, I thought, yesterday was perfectly spot on. That's what dictates it. And uh, the TV companies know who they want. And they have every right, every right, because they're putting the money in, to put the players on who they want to. And, uh, you know, as long as the likes of Trump and Ronnie are still going, then they're the players we're going to see. But the other point that was made was, obviously, the, the deeper Karin goes, the more likely we are to see more of him. And also, it's got to be said, he's not exactly a new name. I mean, he's been in a world final. He's won tournaments. We've seen plenty of him, and uh, I'm sure we'll see plenty more of him as, uh, as the weeks and months progress. But on the subject of complaints, <laughs> Gareth McGinley writes, I'm catching up on your podcast again. 
I found the topic about moaning snooker players interesting. I agree there does seem to be a lot of complaining these days, but is that solely snooker's problem or just symptomatic of a more critical age generally? Either way, the reason I write is because one recent moan that irritated me actually came from yourself and a few other esteemed snooker journos. I refer to your sole criticism of the BBC's recent Gods of Snooker documentary, not that I wish to add fire to the argument that you're biased against the BBC, your view that the series wrap-up was preposterous because it portrayed snooker as a dying sport by the 1990s is not the first time I've heard you guys, Clive, Phil, etc., go on the defensive about this topic. In my view, the documentary was not attempting to deny that snooker continued to exist as a moderately successful TV sport beyond 1990, but was instead attempting to identify an approximate turning point when it reverted from being a British television institution to a less mainstream attraction. They got that just about spot on, in my opinion. Snooker will almost certainly never capture the imagination of the British public again like it did in the 1980s, and perhaps the sooner enthusiasts accept that, the better. In retrospect, it's no great surprise that the game attracted a wider audience at a time when entertainment was high on the agenda. Neither is it surprising that the audience became more niche once the professional element took precedent. Let's not judge the British media or viewing public too harshly for that. It's no big deal anyway, as long as Snooker continues to attract enough interest to survive on British TV screens and keep those purists amongst us riveted. And just to prove I'm not averse to a bit of money myself, I should add that Gods of Snooker was a far from flawless series, not least from a contributor's perspective. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> Thank you, Gareth. I don't agree that 1990 marked a turning point at all. If you look at the Henry White battles of the 90s, I mean, 94, the viewing audience was over 10 million. You know, the, the, the idea that people weren't watching then is just not true. And some of those finals between Hendry and White, two of them in particular, got more than most of the finals in the 80s, beyond, you know, obviously 85 and indeed uh, the year after. So I don't think it's as simple as just to say, oh, the 80s ended and interest ended. It didn't, actually. It's just not just factually not true. Um, I think as television started to splinter um, and more channels came on board and more choice came along and technology changed and now we live in the, the era of streaming... You know, there's so much competition now for eyeballs. So for snooker to still be as popular as it is, is incredible. And it is still popular, otherwise these tournaments wouldn't be on the television. They're only on the television because people are watching them. So there is still huge popularity. What there isn't is that sort of central, sort of cultural gathering around the sport. It's not, it's not the talk of the water cooler, I'm sure. But very little is these days, actually. You know, there's obviously football is always going to be... But then again, that's only... The really big matches, and you look at something like like the Champions League. That's on pay TV now. So even that huge event, a lot of people actually don't get to see. Uh, no terrestrial highlights of the Champions League, um, which I find incredible actually. Um, so you know, snooker's doing pretty well, but I, I accept I accept your criticism. Listen, bring it on. That's that's no problem at all. Um, I think defensive is the the right word to use about some of us in the sport because we you know it's in our interest to promote it. And I always try and be positive about snooker, so uh, if that comes across as sort of denying reality, then uh, I apologise for that. But uh, I think uh, I think the central point you make... Uh, I, I wouldn't agree that, that basically the, the interest ended in the 90s, and I thought the end of Gods of Snooker, which was a fantastic series, I thought, the very end of it, I didn't think was great. I know this for a fact, though. They wanted to do another episode. I know that they wanted to do one, actually updating it, and the, the BBC wouldn't commission it. So actually... It would have been interesting to see that fourth episode. And I'm sure had they been given a fourth episode, then the third one wouldn't have ended the way that it ended. Gareth Collins writes, I only discovered your podcast this past year. I've loved the game for 30 years and play for some time, but not so much recently. 
I've always enjoyed practising and wonder what the top players do these days apart from the lineups and long blues. I recently heard Trump talk about his routines being the best. My question is, what does that look like? Well, unfortunately, Gareth, I'm not really privy to that. I was in the practice room yesterday actually watching John Higgins, who was, um, he had his own little uh, sort of pattern. He put the balls in a particular sort of pattern. I think players, let's be honest, they copy each other. They see what works for other people and they, they take that on board. But any players listening who would like to pass on sort of advice for, for maybe new practice routines outside the sort of the usual lineup and so on, and, and as he says, long, long balls, do pass them on. Um, I think everyone has their own, discover their own way of practicing. Um, but yes, if anyone has any ideas, then uh, do pass them on and we'll pass them on to, to Gareth. Joe Richards writes, A fellow listener mentioned the possibility of a snooker rider cup. This is a great idea. Surely Europe v Asia would make perfect sense with the snooker tour being basically Europe and China. Imagine a Ryder Cup every year, eventually two to four years once established, in Beijing and Shanghai and London and Sheffield. I genuinely think WST are missing a trick here. Look how well the Labour Cup has worked in tennis, despite that being a well-established sport. The first snooker-style Ryder Cup held in the Crucible would be amazing. Bring Steve Davis back to captain Team Europe, and possibly a foreign great, e.g. Cliff Thorburn, to captain Team Asia rest of the world. Imagine Ronnie and Judd, Ding and Robertson on opposing teams in doubles. The Moscone Cup in pool is phenomenal. Snooker's version would be even better. Snooker World Cup really didn't do it for me. A decent idea, but a bit niche. A Ryder Cup would be spectacular. It's a shame it couldn't be called the Davis Cup after Fred and Joe, but tennis wouldn't allow it. Perhaps call it the Tavis Cup. That's T-A-Y-V-I-S. After the greatest moment in snooker history, Taylor v. Davis. Even have those two as inaugural captains. That tournament would sell out the Crucible or Ali Pali in a flash and would add a bit much... bit of mu- it would add a bit of much-needed fresh excitement to the tour instead of the snooker shootout, which just attracts a bunch of football hooligan darts fans who scream and shout when somebody makes a simple pot look like they have three brain cells between them. I think the tournament would need to be billed as a classy event and wear bow ties, etc., not polo shirts, have excitement between frames before and after matches. But when the tournament starts, keep it quiet and classy as you don't want it to be a pantomime. Let me know your thoughts. Well, um, I, we did discuss this a few weeks ago, and I, I, my idea was kind of Europe versus Asia, maybe Asia-Pacific, to drag Neil Robertson in. There's a few points here, though. There's no guarantee the players would want to play in it. This is the thing. Uh, unless the money was good, what's, what's, what really is in it for them? Um, snooker is not a sport of kind of uh, international rivalry. It's not like football where it's country against country, it's man against man, or man against woman, or woman against woman. It's, it's an individual sport. Not everyone has wanted to play in the World Cup down the years. So, you know, it, it would have to be worth the players' while to do it. I'm not sure the Crucible is the right place. The Crucible, for me, is a for the World Championship. And I'm also not sure venues would sell out for it. There's no actual um, market research, as far as I know, about whether this would even be popular with people. We don't know. That's the point. So... I'm all for trying it. I think it would be an interesting experiment. But, you know, we would have to see whether actually people would take to it. And this is why I'm against a rest of the world team, because how do you cheer on rest of the world? You know, it's, it's, you can't identify as a, as a country with rest of the world. You're just lumped in, basically, you know, with lots of other countries. I mean, at least Europe is a continent, I suppose. Um, so definitely, you know, this sort of... Asia, China would have to be involved. And it may, you're right, it may be popular in one of those countries, but I don't know. I don't see it as a priority. I think they should focus on ranking events and and big tournaments, uh, individual tournaments. 
all this other stuff that people talk about, doubles and so on. Yes, okay, ideally we'll have events like that, but not at the expense of a ranking tournament or a proper, you know, high-class invitation event, maybe. Now, last week I didn't have a chance to read out all of Mark Gray's uh, comments. We did one of them, but uh, he's got a couple more here. Mark, so uh, firstly, a thought that occurs to me is that the very small number of young players who are coming through at the moment, this must be a real concern for WST. It seems to me the full 1-8 to draw from the start is a real break on developing young players' careers. If, say, a 19-year-old rookie pro is constantly playing top 32 players with well-honed match play skills and not getting any financial gain for losing, that can't be good. Surely at least some tournaments could bring in the top 32 later and give new players a chance to gain confidence and craft away from the glare of TV and away from the pressures of playing the best. It seems to me it would do the game a lot of good to use different formats for tournaments. It would also help young, particularly foreign players, to increase their chances of earning a decent amount of money. How many in the current environment would copy Neil Robertson and come to the UK with any barely any money in their pockets, with barely a chance to earn a decent living, or a de- to earn a decent living, or reward? The problem is, I think, I, I I don't disagree that the flat draw has not helped bring through players, but World Snooker are wedded to it because they feel that that's the the best way of achieving the prize money ranking list. Now, a lot of people don't like the prize money ranking list, and I did a whole episode on that a few months ago, suggesting alternatives. We've had other suggestions. Um, was the old format so bad? You know, coming in the first round, you in the old format, you would play players nearer your standard, nearer your place in the rankings. The problem with this format is, as you say, you can draw Mark Selby round one, Judd Trump, you know, Sullivan, Neil Robertson, etc., etc., and you're more than likely to get beat. You get no prize money, and your confidence takes a battering if you keep getting beaten. You fall off the tour. It's back to Q school. It's difficult. The old days, you had to win more matches, but as I say, you're starting off against players closer to your standard. So... I think opinion is still divided. I know people like Sean Murphy think, yeah, everyone should come in the first round. It's more sort of a meritocracy and you have to earn your chance, obviously. You're given the opportunity, it's up to you. But we're not seeing players, you know, cutting a sway through sort of tournaments in the way they maybe did back in the day, 30 years ago, when players would, would come through qualifying and then by the time they turn up at the venue, they're actually quite sharp. And when they play a top player, maybe they fancy their chances more. It's difficult. Um and you'll never find a system that everyone agrees with. But, you know, if we're not getting that stream of young talent coming through, maybe the, the sort of draw format is something that needs to be looked at. Mark continues, On the Crucible as a venue, I think what players like Judd Trump and Neil Robertson might not appreciate is that the game is largely a TV sport. Finding a venue that gets more people in to watch live is a relatively marginal issue for the game, I would have thought. And to risk losing the history of a venue like the Crucible in return for relatively small gains... Seems silly to me. For all the brickbats Ronnie gets, for some of his comments, Judd Trump seems to make just as many unhelpful, poorly thought-out comments. Well, that's Mark's view. Um, this seems a long time ago now, doesn't it, that Judd and Neil were talking about all that stuff. Um, I actually think Judd Trump is a terrific speaker. You know, it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything he says, but I think he talks really well. He was very shy when he was younger, but he's developed actually into quite a confident young man now. And... Uh, Listen, I didn't agree with what he said about the Crucible, and I said so. But I, I appreciate that he, you know, he actually does. I think think about, you know, he, he, what he wants to say, and I think he represents uh, the sport well. And Ronnie, you know, has been terrific value uh, already in the Eurosport studio. I think as with Karen, I think there's nothing wrong with hearing opinions. You know, players are often sort of dismissed as being dull and bland, and there's that old cliche: there's no characters in the game. But then often when they give opinions, they're shot down by people. Oh, you can't say that, that's disgraceful. So which is it? Do you want people to speak their mind 
or do you want people to not say anything? I think we want people to speak their mind, and then it's up to everyone else what they think of it. It starts debates, it starts arguments, and you know it's all part of the sort of the the circus around the torments. But what really matters is what happens on the table, which of course is to use the old cliche where the players really do their talking. Let's uh, go back to the. Uh, the ranking system now. Scott Pease writes, he said, I listened to the latest podcast and had to write in about the Frames 1-based ranking proposition because, coincidentally, I spent some time last weekend thinking about the same thing. As you said, it's not like they're actually going to change the system, but it's fun to think about. As an aside, a simple solution to the current nonsensical situation where Trump and Selby are swapping the one and two spots irrespective of their current performances could be addressed by downweighting the ranking points from over a year ago, say to half, for instance, their 70,000 points from a home nation's win in 2019 would be worth 35,000 now. Downweighting older data is super common in time series analysis. In my mind, the three things that anyone cares about in the rankings are who is number one, the top 16, the top 64. I compared end of season rankings to what they would have been with a plain old frames one system. One point for one frame. While I could have done this for a few more end of seasons to get a bit better picture, the results for this one comparison seem intuitively right enough. There are a lot of details, but the key point is that it didn't seem to make much of a difference. Trump and Selby are still 1-2. and two. Steve Maguire is the only top 16 player who would have dropped out of the 16 to be replaced by Joe Perry. Only three changes at the top 64 cutoff, so six players affected. One major issue with frames-based ranking is that there would be a fear of match-fixing in the World Championship. For example, if you're ranked 40, playing your friend who's 65, and 64 is already eliminated at just two points ahead of your friend, there would be a temptation to give them the three frames needed to stay on the tour. While I developed a whole ranking system that I won't get into, I wanted to add that I don't think a tier system winds up any better than the current system. You'd just be tweaking knobs until you got what seemed good. But I think it would secretly be equally arbitrary. Well, uh, that may have made no sense to anyone who didn't listen to our podcast a few weeks ago where someone wrote in with uh, an alternative system, but go back and listen to that and all will become clear. I think all these things, like the, 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 the like you say, the tiered system versus the flat draw, the ranking system, it's all kind of interesting, but really, we all know who the best players are. You know, we know who... who who are the should be the highest higher ranked players and are the highest ranked player because they win tournaments and ultimately that really is what it's about. But there is an argument that more consistency should be rewarded through the rankings. You know, if you get to the last sixteen of every ranking event, are you not a top sixteen player? Really, if you get into the last sixteen of every tournament, you are one of the best sixteen players in the world. But you won't be in the top sixteen because you're not getting the big money for winning the tournaments. So anyway, these are arguments that people have. Players love talking about all this stuff. But uh, World Snooker Tour are pretty much fixed, I think, on keeping the system very much as it is. I think we'll end there. It's been a bit breathless this week, but um, I've got to go and uh, prepare for John Higgins versus Oliver Lyons this evening. It'll be interesting to see if Oliver can uh, do what his dad Peter seems to do, which is beat John Higgins most times they play. He's got a great record over Higgins. But uh, an inter- I mean, listen, this, the, by the time you hear this, the match will probably would have been played, but seems to me Oliver Lyons is in that position where he started to qualify for tournaments regularly. The next step up is to start winning matches at the venues, particularly against the top players. Higgins is looking great. Um, as I say, I watched him practice yesterday and he, he seems in a good place after that uh, that Belfast disappointment. Remember when he lost the Masters final uh, at the start of the year and people said, well, that could really you know, really set him back. That'll take some getting over. And then a few weeks later, he played sensational snooker. Sensational snooker to win the Players' Championship. So, you know, he could be 
a threat uh, here, but we will find out and uh, hopefully everyone enjoys uh, the rest of the week. Next week, we'll be looking ahead to the Champion of Champions. The draw will be made on Monday. Also next week, the draw will be out for the UK Championship, although uh, most people can work it out anyway because it's strictly seeded, 1v128, etc., etc. Um, yeah, it's an exciting time of the calendar. I always think when the clocks go back, the weather gets bad in the UK, it's dark, it's rainy, it's, it's miserable. That's when the circuit comes alive because it's properly heading into winter and uh, people gather around the fire, either literally or metaphorically, and enjoy the tournaments to come. Of course, this English Open, Champion of Champions, UK Championship, Scottish Open, World Grand Prix, and even a bit of Championship League squeezed in before Christmas as well. In the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. And uh, you can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. I do try and read out most of the emails. Sometimes some of them disappear down the back of the sofa, but uh, keep your thoughts coming in. In the meantime, that is it. Someone asked me uh, on Twitter, they said they miss us not saying goodbye-bye, uh, which, is, which is, it takes too long to explain why we said that in the first place. So for old time's sake, I will say it this week. Until next week, it's goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.